Well, this morning we are going to be looking at Acts 2, so if you want to turn there, and while you're turning to Acts 2, I want to uh, have you imagine something with me here this morning as we get started. I want you to imagine with me what it would have been like to live this moment in history. Imagine what was going on at this point. There was no church, no such thing as church. The word didn't really exist. There was no church buildings. There's no sense that there are these buildings. There are no church programs. It was this kind of in-between time. There was this kind of totally blank slate. Imagine the people that were here in this time in history. These people knew Jesus, obviously. They'd lived with him. They'd walked with him. They saw him die a most terrible death. These people also saw him resurrected, experienced that. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And then, of course, they stood gazing up as he ascended. And because Jesus had told them they were being obedient and they went to wait. They went to wait. I wonder... Can you imagine, was this an exciting time for them? How confusing was it? I mean, what exactly were they waiting for? Did they know what they were really waiting for? Could they even have imagined what this day of Pentecost was going to bring? You know, I have a feeling there were a lot of mixed emotions going on in their hearts Jesus had talked about the Holy Spirit, about a counselor. Well, what do you mean you're going to send a counselor? What what does that mean? Different ways that he described the Spirit, they were probably wondering, I wonder what exactly this is going to be, but they were there waiting. And I want to just, again, look at the first couple verses here in Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. I want to stop there for a moment because that's a key key question that we want to ask ourselves, which is, uh, what is Pentecost? Maybe. There it goes. What is Pentecost? Um, First of all, this is a Greek name, and it is a Greek name that basically means 50. And it was also in the Hebrew calendar that would be known as the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits of the Jews. So what, though, is this day of Pentecost, well, first and foremost, you need to know it's a vacation day, okay? Like, we all love vacation days, right? It's a holiday. We're not working. So nobody was working, except for in the temple, the priests would have been working that day. But everybody else, it was a vacation. They were on vacation, and of course, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'm always looking for any possible holiday out there as a reason to go on vacation. You know, celebrate all the Canadian holidays, all the U.S. holidays, you know, Puerto Rican holidays. I don't care if it's a holiday, right? So I can imagine people were in a good mood, vacation day. Um, It's a day that was very important on the Jewish calendar because every Jewish male within 20 miles of Jerusalem would travel into Jerusalem and make a pilgrimage. And the reason they would do that is because they were there to celebrate what was known as the Feast of Weeks or the first harvest, the barley harvest, the first harvest of the year. So the time frame for this is probably end of May, early June. 
And the population in Jerusalem was around 50,000 at this time, but when the Feast of Weeks came, it would mushroom to probably about 125,000 is what historians think. And so they're celebrating the first harvest of the year, and part of that would be offering. They would make these loaves, these barley loaves, and they would be offered in the temple uh, by the priest, would offer, would offer the loaves. And so imagine if you were in Jerusalem during this time. Uh, again, it's hustling, bustling, time of celebration. People probably, you know, elbow to elbow in the streets. You know, all the hotels are booked. I mean, you can't get a room anywhere, I'm sure. And, and uh, everyone is probably more or less thinking, hey, it's just another year. Just another Pentecost. We're here to celebrate. But then, if you look at, as we read on, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, it says, they were all together in one place. This is important. They. You see, the they are the 120. And they know, they're in this upper room, they know that this Pentecost is going to be different somehow. And I can imagine, as they're waiting, maybe looking out the windows, you see all the normal activity going on as the pilgrims are in town, and uh, people are just kind of going about their daily, you know, kind of their celebratory business of Feast of Weeks, and yet, these 120 were sitting there in this upper room or standing, or I don't know, maybe they were doing an exercise. I don't know what they were doing, but they were waiting. They knew that this day of Pentecost somehow was going to be different on some level. And I'm wondering whether they really understood the significant place in history that they were going to, where they were really standing. When Jesus was sending the Spirit, I wonder if they really understood that from this day forward, their lives were going to be totally changed. The whole direction of their lives, everything about them was going to change from this day forward. I have a feeling that, in some ways, they didn't understand that. I have a feeling that, in some ways, they were waiting, and they weren't sure what they are waiting for, but I, I, I have a hunch that they were probably thinking, well, okay, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and then, okay, maybe we'll go on with business. Maybe we'll just go on with life. See, these 50 days that happened here in history, these 50 days of history, I believe, are the most important days in salvation history. Beginning in Luke 23, where Jesus was crucified, Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected. Acts 1, Jesus ascends. And now the stage is set for Acts 2, where we will see Jesus pouring out the Spirit. So let's pick up here again in verse 2. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Suddenly. This suddenly, I believe, captures a moment for us. It captures the idea of surprise, the surprise of God's mercy. When God broke in again, and in this moment, the suddenly tells us that he broke in and he poured out his spirit. Again, 
when God breaks into our lives, He doesn't ask for permission. We see other suddenlies in the New Testament with the angels. He appears and it says, suddenly, the angels appeared at the birth of Christ. See, when God breaks into the planet, it comes suddenly. And I believe no matter how much these 120 were waiting for something, I don't think they had any idea what this was going to be. And that's why I believe it says suddenly it came, and they were like, whoa. And what happens? We see three manifestations that happen. The first is the wind, like a rushing wind. They say when a tornado is approaching, it sounds like a train coming. When I was 16, I was in a car when my sister was driving, and as we were driving home, we were, found ourselves all of a sudden in a tornado. And uh, I can't tell you what it sounded like because I was too scared. <laughs> my sister was driving, she stopped the car, she looked out to her left, and she goes, Tornado! Duck! <laughs> and we all ducked. The tornado picked the car up and lifted it off to the side of the road very gently in many ways, it wasn't that harsh, and the windows exploded, uh, all the pressure that had built up. Of course, we didn't think about, hey, we should roll down the windows first and then duck. I don't know. <laughs> but I believe that the wind here, when it comes, it comes in such a way that it obviously, I think, makes a noise, and I think that begins to draw this crowd around the upper room as the wind comes and the noise fills the room. And of course, the wind is an emblem of the Spirit, in the Old Testament, this is a common way. And Jesus, as well, talked about this in John 3 with Nicodemus. He says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we have this imagery of wind, and I think the wind imagery here is this idea that it's, it's, it blows out the cobwebs of fear in our lives and, and the layers of struggle and uncertainty, and the presence of the wind is this idea of inrushing this, this new way. This new way of the Spirit is coming in, and it's going to come and, and change these disciples in, in magnificent ways. We see a second manifestation then of the fire. Again, these tongues of fire seem to appear only to the apostles who were in the room. Just the people in the room, there's this manifestation. And it says that these these uh, tongues of fire, again, rested, rested on each person individually. This is an important aspect because we're now seeing that the Holy Spirit is going to come and rest on everyone. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon certain people, on prophets, and give them prophecy to say. But here, the Spirit is coming to rest and indwell everyone. It's important also to understand in this picture that these tongues of fire give us that it's a dwelling, that the Spirit's going to dwell in their lives, is going to dwell inside of them. And the Spirit is God. It's the third part of the Trinity. It's a person. It's not an energy force. I think a lot of times when we read about the Spirit, we can get thinking, oh, it's some sort of force in our lives. No, it's, it's the person of God. It's the third part of the Trinity dwelling inside. And so we see this again fulfilling what Luke talked to, or, well, John the Baptist recorded for us in Luke, where John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, fire and the Spirit of God are very synonymous. 
the idea of wind in the Old Testament. These are pictures that these Jewish people would be very familiar with. I think it's important to understand, too, as we read into the New Testament, we see this idea of fire. I think it has also a picture for us of, of a refining moment, this refiner's fire, this idea that as the Spirit comes and indwells us, He's burning out, burning the shaft out of our lives, taking the stuff that doesn't belong there. Well, I think if you were to, to look back in your own life and think about this, from the time that you became a believer in Christ to now, if you can look back five years, three years, two years, I'm guessing what you will have seen is your character is being transformed over time. Again, if we just look back to yesterday, we might have lost it, okay? I mean, I'm just, I don't want to share any personal testimonies this morning, but, but if I look back over two years of my life, the last, look back where I was two years ago to where I'm at today, I can see that the Holy Spirit has refined me and He is continuing to transform me. And I think that's a good picture for us of the fire of the Spirit in our lives that He dwells in us and, and there's this picture of refinement that is happening. And I'm sure it's happening in your life as well. I believe the fire of the Spirit is really what freed these apostles to start loving people in ways that they've never loved before. This fire of the Spirit was empowering them to make a difference in their lives. And then the third picture we have, or the third manifestation, is that of tongues. It's interesting, this is the first instance of tongues in the Bible. While the filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament would produce prophecy, and it, it now is talking here about these tongues. And I believe it's a picture here that these tongues are a sign. Um, and, and it's a sign that I don't even think the apostles were getting yet. I, I think this was above above their heads, above their pay grade at this point. As we read through the book of Acts, I think we're going to get more and more of a picture, and they're going to understand more and more of what was really going on here. But, but the sign of the tongues here was to show that the gospel was for all peoples, for everybody, all mankind, every person, everywhere, every nation. God was to be praised not only by the Jews, but by all people. So we read in verse 11 that these tongues were speaking again of the mighty deeds of God. And they were understandable to these people in their mother tongue. It's interesting that this takes us back to really Numbers eleven twenty nine, where Moses said this statement. He said, are you jealous for my sake? He says, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. I think there's kind of a fulfillment of that here, that Moses was just longing for all the people to be able to be prophets, to be able to be witnesses. And now here they are, the tongues have come, and they now are capable of doing that. Again, it's important that we don't get caught up in kind of the amazing part of the, the like, how did that happen? What did that look like? I mean, we could spend hours trying to figure that out, and I don't think that's the point of the text here in Acts. The point of the text, as we see over and over again, is these tongues came, it's what they were declaring. That's the point. They are declaring the mighty works of God. That was the point of the tongues. So let's pick it up then in, in verse 5. Um, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of 
us in his own native language. And then they go on and list the groups of people that are there. And then it goes on in verse 11 and says, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They're filled with new wine. We're not told what the speakers were feeling here. We're not told what the speakers were thinking. We're told that they were filled with the Spirit, the Spirit had been poured out, and they were simply speaking tongues and talking about the mighty deeds of God. But what we are told is what the hearers were experiencing. And of course, it says, aren't these guys Galileans? Well, that's kind of putting them down, basically. What they're basically saying is, yeah, these folks aren't really the most cultured people. There's no way they know my tongue. <laughs> like, we have this beautiful language. It's kind of like, you know... Uh, some sort of a American, you know, right, speaking in a French accent, right? It's beautiful language. Like, how could you do that? You're an American, you know? Uh, it's this idea that they thought these guys were uneducated. They didn't really have culture in their life. And here they are speaking in their languages. And so they were mystified. And so they asked this question, what does this mean? It's an important question to ask. Of course, uh, the place here is again, packed with people from around the, the known world. And there's this picture to me in this moment of, again, God's sovereignty. This is intentional on God's part, that Jerusalem, this day of Pentecost, was going to become ground zero for the mission of Christ. And so what does he do? He brings all the nations to one place. It's amazing how God kind of does that kind of stuff in history. He kind of takes care of it. Here they are. And so we need to understand that this day in history is a massive, massive turning point in history, in salvation history. It, it's, it is the biggest turning point. The Spirit has now come on all people. The nations have gathered. And the deeds of God are being displayed and being talked about. And there's this great outpouring so Peter stands up then to explain what's going on. And of course, he, he says at the very beginning, and he might be being sarcastic, I'm not sure exactly, but he's like, look, uh, these people aren't drunk. <laughs> like, it's 10 in the morning, come on. Now, if it were like 5 in the afternoon, maybe, you know. Uh, so I think he's, again, just obviously turning that aside. And, and so he addresses the crowd, and he gets up and he quotes this passage from Joel, it talks about the last days. It says, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So we have this picture here in Joel that he's making the point that the Old Testament talked about this day, that when the spirit would come, it fulfills this prophecy in Joel. And this was spoken by Joel, and he says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and that's what's happening. And he is saying, this is the day that Joel was talking about. The Spirit would come down and mighty things would happen. The fact that Joel's prophecy here is told here in the context of something called the Day of the Lord means that this is not just a kind of a happy day. Hey, the Spirit's come. It's also a day of warning. It's a day of warning. Peter wants to make that clear, that this day of Pentecost 
sets the clock ticking, okay? The day of Pentecost sets the clock ticking for another huge day that's coming, the day of the Lord, when Christ returns. And that'll be the next suddenly that we now see in our history. We're waiting. We're, we are people now waiting. We are the church. We are the result of Pentecost. So we are those people that should read this prophecy and see what's going on and say, now we're waiting for the next suddenly when Christ will return. So the clock has been set, and it is now ticking. And so then he reminds the people of how Christ was crucified. And I want to pick that up in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I think we see two important aspects here of Peter's message, that God preordained that Jesus Christ would live and then would die on the cross. Yet at the same time, Peter says, you're responsible. We are responsible for that death. We, you, he's saying, chose to put him on the cross. There's this picture here of, of, again, God moving in history, and yet the choices that the people make are real choices. They have real consequences, and that's still true in our lives today. Then he turns here to the Old Testament scriptures and connects the dots. He's preaching here to a Jewish audience. And he begins to connect the dots through some of the, the psalms here about David, helping them understand how Jesus is David's descendant. And, and he was the one who was going to sit on the throne forever, as David had talked about. And then he lands here in verse 36 when he says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This first apostolic sermon lands very significantly on this point that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And for the Jewish audience, he's their Messiah. He's his Christ. He's Messiah as well. But Jesus is Lord. The apostolic creed, it's right here. Right in the beginning, the first sermon we see part of the apostolic creed. Jesus is Lord. He is the name above all names. Jesus is God. Peter wants to drive that point home for his audience that Jesus is now the one to, to worship. He's worth our worship. He should be worshipped. He's the one that we should give our lives to, to give up everything to follow him. There's something to notice about Peter's message here that I think is also significant is that it's an objective message. Again, this message is true regardless of our feelings, regardless of our desires, regardless of whether we like it or not. Peter is just driving the point phone. These are the facts. The facts are that Jesus lived he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. He resurrected to show that he's overcome. 
These are the facts. He's Lord. He's God. And no matter what we want to say, or we want to say, oh, I don't like that, or I don't, it doesn't feel good, it doesn't matter. Peter's just saying, this is the objective truth. And what does it say happened? Very significant thing happened here. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. One thing about this gospel message, the good news of Christ, one thing about the fact that Jesus is Lord, is that when that message is preached, it's an intrusive message. It's a message that says, if you're going to hear this message and believe this message, it's going to cut you to the heart. It's going to be an intrusive message. It's going to make a difference inside of you. Because you're going to begin to realize that you've been trying to make your life work apart from Christ. You've been trying to make your life work on your own. You've been trying to pay the penalty for your sin. When you realize that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin, it cuts you to the heart and you realize, wow, I want that. I want to change. I want my heart to be changed. And so the people asked the question when they were cut to the heart, They said, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That is good news. We're the far off. This message that Peter preached that day is not just for his audience, not just for the children of his audience. It is for all those who are far off, for us today when we hear this message. So the question is, what shall we do? It's the same thing. Repent. What does that mean, repent? It means to change your mind and stop believing that you can somehow save yourself from this crooked generation. Instead, turn to Christ and believe in Him. He's the one who's paid the penalty for your sin. And then change your actions based on the teaching of Christ. Now follow Him with every ounce of your being. See, they needed to turn from their unbelief unbelief to turn to Christ and begin to believe that He was the Messiah, that He is the Lord. It's the same way for us. We too have been warned There's a coming judgment that we can avoid if we'll repent of of running our own lives and turning them over to Jesus. Repentance is an act of faith. Repentance was to be followed then, he says, by baptism. Again, in the New Testament, there is no such thing as a believer in Christ who wasn't baptized. It didn't exist. It was a natural progression. When you repent of your sins, you go into the waters of baptism and you say, I want to show publicly that I'm a follower of Christ. Why? Right here we have, again, this New Testament. Why did they, were they baptized? What are they being baptized into? Here's the picture. It says, for the forgiveness of your sins, in the name of Jesus Christ, the change is happening here, right now. We are not going to see people be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins as they repent. And again, the promise is now good for all time. 
So anyone who does this can be assured that they'll receive the Spirit. It's important to understand that in this context, both from the prophecy of Joel as well as connecting this to David in the Old Testament, that the coming of the Spirit is connected with judgment. I want to look at Luke 3.17, which we looked at 3.16 earlier, when this is John the Baptist. Again, he says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Why? His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the shaft will burn with unquenchable fire. Peter wanted to make it clear, and I want to make it clear as well, that this call to repentance is important. It matters. Jesus commands our obedience. Why? For the sake of our joy. It's good news because following Christ brings great joy. It relieves us from any fear. It's goodbye guilt, goodbye condemnation, goodbye greatest fears. That's the great gift when you repent. See, the question is that day, as the Holy Spirit was being poured out on these early believers, is is it a good day or is it a bad day? Well, it's a good day if you repent because you enter into this relationship with Christ where your fear goes away, condemnation goes away, and you live free. But it's a bad day if you refuse because there's another suddenly coming when Christ is going to return. When you repent, you take on a new identity. And that's what's going on here. You take on a new identity. That's what it means when you get baptized and the Holy Spirit enters you as you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you begin this new identity, this, this new, the Bible talks about being a new creation. And you know what? We live, we live right now in the greatest era in history because the Spirit has been poured out, and He gives power to the church. Right now, we have the Spirit. When we receive Christ, we get the Spirit. That is amazing. Christ dwells in us. That's life-changing. We need to understand that. Why is it? When we see in Acts 2, the most important reason why the Spirit was coming was to be witnesses. See, our lives... When we receive Christ, when we repent, receive Christ, start to follow him, our lives become a witness. Because Christ is in us. We can't help really but be a witness. The Holy Spirit is driving us. But I think one of the questions that I've been asking is this question of, are we plugged in? I know, you know, you call customer service, right? Is it plugged in? Well, of course, yeah, of course it's plugged in. I have a feeling a lot of times spiritually... We think we're plugged in, and we're plugged in kind of like that power strip. 
And then we're wondering, I don't sense the Spirit in my life. I, 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 I came to follow Christ, but I don't sense there's anything going on here. It might be because we're plugged in that way. See, I think what often happens in our lives is um, we have these to-do lists. And if your life's anything like mine, it's very messy to-do list. A lot of things on it. There's a lot of running around in my life, a lot of scrambling, trying to get to the next thing. And the reality is that when I look at, oftentimes I look at the priorities of my life and they don't really reflect the values of the kingdom of God. What they reflect are the trivialities of my life. And that's something that I've been really wrestling with probably for the last year in particular of my life, been asking that question of, am I really plugged in? Am I really plugged in? Am I really allowing the Holy Spirit to guide me and to direct me? One of the things that, that I did, been studying more, and uh, I bought this little book by Francis Chan called Forgotten God, and it's, it's a good book if you want to read a book on the Holy Spirit. Because I've been challenged personally to say, am I really walking in the power of the Spirit in my life. When I look at Acts 2 and I look at the transformation that happened in these disciples, and 120 of them changed the world. Of course, the first sermon, 3,000 more joined. (laughs) And I think, what about us today? We still have the power of the Spirit. So I've been thinking a lot about this question of priorities in my life, and that's what I want to challenge you with today is um, we all have our own agendas We all have our own priorities and our own pressures in life. I know that. And it's easy for us to start filling up the whiteboard of our lives uh, with our stuff. If you uh, were having a graduation party in June, so we took it down, but if you used to come in our garage door, we had a big whiteboard hanging as you came in the door. We got four kids, four schedules. Well, the oldest is gone. We don't worry about his schedule, but three schedules. Uh, If you look at that whiteboard... I mean, there are times where I look at a thing and I think, I don't even know. <laughs> like, what am I doing? It all feels so important. And yet I wonder, where is the Holy Spirit in all of this in my life? So I've been thinking about this. What if you allow the Holy Spirit to first erase your whiteboard? I want, I want us to think about that here this morning. That's the kind of music the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's, that's the kind of music he likes. Just saying. So if you really want to connect, start listening to that kind of music. We heard some of that here last night, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so here's what I'm thinking. If, if we would let the Holy Spirit erase our whiteboard, and then we left it blank and we started asking this question to the Holy Spirit, saying, Holy Spirit, I want you to guide me. I want you to direct every aspect of my life. And we said, I want to listen to you, and I want you to start putting things back on the whiteboard that you want me to have on there. I've been debating a lot about what I'm going to say next. But I'm going to say something next, and I want to be careful. I want to say, first of all, that I think there's a great exercise here in just erasing the whiteboard and 
sitting quietly, trying to hear the Spirit. But I also know that maybe there is something that needs to be said a little bit more about what are we listening for, what might we hear. First of all, I want to say that we have to remember our lives, I know, seem like what we're doing tomorrow seems really important. Whatever's on your agenda. I know it seems important to you. I know that. It does to me too. I might be golfing tomorrow. I don't, anyway. But here's the point. I think we have to stop doing that to ourselves and realize that, again, there's one more sudden day coming. There's another suddenly on the way here. We're waiting for it. And in the meantime, what we're really called to is to fulfill the mission, to be witnesses, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I want you to know that the stakes are high. Our first call is certainly to Hilliard. Hilliard. There are people in Hilliard who need to hear the gospel. We also are called to go around the world. I know we have connections here with Honduras, with the Philippines, with uh, Central African Republic, and I'm sure there are other mission fields. We're called to that. We're called to take the good news to these people. We must remember that. I don't believe we'll go unless we allow the Spirit to lead. So once we allow the Holy Spirit to erase our boards, what are we listening for? The first thing I want to say is you'll probably come in contact with this immediately when you start listening to the Spirit is He's going to convict you of sin. This is bottom line. We all sin. We have sin in our lives. And if you slow down and erase the whiteboard, the first thing you're going to hear is the Holy Spirit's going to begin to reveal to you your sin. That's, that's normal and that's a good thing because we have one who died for our sin and we confess it then. And we move forward with our lives. There's no condemnation. Simply hear the Spirit say, yes, Spirit, I hear that. I hear, I see this sin in my life, and I want to confess it, and I want to move forward. A second thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit is that He's all about the church. And the church isn't the building, the church is the people. So when you start listening to the Spirit, He's going to challenge you in ways that are going to challenge you to say, how much do you love the church? How much do you really love the people of God? You're going to hear that. You're going to be challenged by that. To say, what is it going to look like for you to be part of God's kingdom, which is building his church right now? In this time we live, he wants to build the church. Again, not, not buildings, the people. The Holy Spirit's going to ask you that question, I believe, is do you love the church? The third thing I think the Holy Spirit's going to ask you is, what are you doing for the glory of Jesus Christ? It's all about His glory. It's not about your glory. What are you doing to raise up His glory in your life? Fourth, I think He's going to ask you to think about risk. Again, I don't believe the Holy Spirit um, wants us to be too comfortable. I believe the Holy Spirit is going to ask us to take a risk. Don't quench the Spirit when He does that. When He's prodding you to say something, to do something, don't just nudge Him away. Listen. Say, okay. Because part of that probably is going to mean changing some of your priorities and changing some of your agenda. <laughs> These disciples, 
Their whole agenda was changed that day. It's just another Pentecost, right? No. Their whole lives were turned upside down. Don't think yours won't be too. You want to follow Christ? Your life will be turned upside down. Fifth, use your community as a sounding board. When you have a sense that the Spirit is asking you to take on a project, go to your small group and ask them, hey, I feel like the Spirit's telling me this. I sense this. Ask your group. Find accountability. Pray together with other folks. Again, the Holy Spirit's not going to ask you to be a solo act. Remember this, too, that you are unique. Yeah, some of us are more unique than others, I know. But the reality is only you will be put in certain situations by the Holy Spirit to be a witness. Only you. No one else can do it but you. But the reality is when the Spirit puts you in these unique spots, do you stand up and be a witness? And what I mean stand up and be a witness to His mighty works, it's, it's not always talking. <laughs> Sometimes one of the best ways to stand up and be a witness for Christ is to be a good listener. What does that look like in those unique places to really listen to somebody, to love somebody? Be a person where the mighty works of God are displayed in your life. I want to close. I, I just want to read a couple of paragraphs. This is a guy, Dave Phillips, um, and this is kind of how the Holy Spirit worked on him and his life. It says, years ago, Dave Phillips and his wife, Lynn, had, had a talk about the callings they felt God was stirring in them. As they discussed what they were most passionate about, they agreed that bringing relief to suffering children and reaching the next generation with the gospel were at the top of the list. The thought of starting a relief agency was considered, but Dave's response was, but that would mean I'd have to talk in front of people. By nature, Dave is very quiet, behind-the-scenes man. But after much prayer, David set aside his fears, and he and Lynn started Children's Hunger Fund out of their garage. Six weeks after CHF was launched, in January of 1992, he received a phone call from the director of a cancer treatment center in Honduras, asking if there was any way he could obtain a certain drug for seven children who would die without it. Dave wrote down the name of the drug and told the director that he had no idea how to get this type of drug. They then prayed over the phone and asked God to provide. As Dave hung up the phone, before he even let go of the receiver, the phone rang again. It was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of that exact drug. Not only did they offer him $8 million worth of this drug, but they told him they would airlift it any place in the world. Dave would later learn that the company was one of only two that manufactured this particular drug in the United States. Within 48 hours, Dave had the drug sent to the treatment center in Honduras and to 20 other locations as well. It was then he believed firmly that God was at work validating his calling into this ministry. Again, I don't know. Sometimes we read stories like that, I know, and it seems too big for us, and I get that. But I also look at that story, and what I like about it is they just started off small. <laughs> they just said, hey, you know what? We believe God's calling us to relieve hunger. They started something out of their garage. They were obedient to that still, small voice. They were obedient to the Holy Spirit in small ways. And that's really what I want to leave you with today is as you listen to the Spirit try to fill up your whiteboard, chances are it's just probably going to be a lot of little small things to start with. But Paul makes this statement in Galatians 5, 24. 
He says, I've crucified the flesh. I don't know about you, that doesn't feel good. But that's what we're called to. We're called to lay down our lives and give until it hurts. You see, we're not called to chase being comfortable. We're not called to chase after peace in this life. No, our call is to crucify our flesh and listen to the Spirit and let the Holy Spirit begin to unfold what He wants to do in our lives. And you may end up having a biography like Dave Phillips. Let me pray for us.